Uh, let, me, let me pray as we get into this this morning. Father, uh, I pray now, Lord, that your mercies would be on full display, that your goodness, Lord, your kindness that leads us to salvation would be evident and obvious to all. Father, I pray that you would give wisdom and discernment to me as I preach your word. Lord, that you would as importantly give wisdom and discernment to the hearers, Lord, that we would all truly search, search your scriptures to find truth. Thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the benefits of uh, preaching only once or twice per year as a lay elder is that typically the sermon that I would want to write has been born out of a text that the Lord has been working out in my own life. Um, so well before I determined to write a sermon on this particular topic today, the Lord had been really just had me in the woodshed of his grace and his mercy and working this out in my own life. And uh, so the, the message I bring you this morning is, is that type of sermon. Uh, I'm most certain that none of you, except maybe my wife, and I did have one sweet lady after first, came up and said, hey, I remember that sermon too. But we'll remember uh, a, a sermon I preached in 2022 during our summer series in Proverbs. And the title of that sermon was The Wisdom of Wise Counsel. And I most certainly remember that sermon because it was in writing that sermon and preaching that sermon that I fell under great conviction. Great conviction that I needed to seek wise counsel in an area of my own life. That area related to idolatry in my own heart. Specifically, my idolatry was related to my enslavement to the sin of gluttony. To the lies of control, of comfort, and concealment. A primary verse that the Holy Spirit constantly put before me was Proverbs 28.13. Proverbs 28.13 reads this, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Amen. Uh, the ESV says kind of the same thing, but changes at the end. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. John Crick and I years ago were talking, and um, I've always confided in John and love John, and he told me one, many years ago, one of the positives of my so-called secret sin was that it really couldn't be a secret because I wore the evidence of that sin outside where people could see it. So I kind of had the not being concealed thing covered in Proverbs 28, 13, right? It was not concealed. And there had been more confessions over the years than I cared to count. Confessions to my Lord, confessions to my patient wife, confessions to my children, confessions to my fellow elders, confessions to friends. There had been new scales to weigh on, diet programs to be on, exercise regiments to follow, yet all these simply became new idols in my heart. But what had not been there was a true repentance, which requires the forsaking of sin in a heart before the Lord. And I wanted so badly to be free from that enslavement to that sin, how I desired to finally forsake the sin of gluttony in my life and find the compassion and the mercy and the resulting joy that come from walking in the righteousness that's promised. So what did I do? Well, I took my own sermon advice to seek wisdom of wise counsel, and I set up a meeting with Jim Neuheiser, um, who is the a UCBC fellow that's down in Charlotte that's coming up to teach next Saturday. And um, in August of 22, I went and met with Jim. And, um, and I set out that August, or that September, working this out. 
This was a very humbling, but yet a very needed step. In my meeting with Jim, he pointed me to scriptures. He pointed me to his own teaching on body idolatry and one resource in particular that I began working through. And that's what I did for about six to eight months. It was during that months-long process, and really ever since, that the Holy Spirit, by His grace, kept using one primary set of verses, along with some practical applications that we'll cover today, to do the work of bringing me to the place of true repentance, which yields the fruit of forsaken sins. My hope this morning is that through the preaching of the Word and the power of the Spirit, the message our Lord has been preaching to me over and over for the past 15 months will be preached to all of us. So turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Romans. Turn in chapter, chapter 12. We're going to examine uh, our text this morning from chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. But in order to get uh, these two verses in the full force of the context that the Apostle Paul wrote them, I want to begin our reading in chapter 11, verse 33. Okay, so we're going to start in 11:33. So follow along in your copy of God's Word. More turn, I need more pages turning. I need more pages. Let me hear them. They're already there. That's my boy. That's actually my brother. So it is my boy, my brother. I've known him his whole life. Um, verse 33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And what a therefore we have right here. This therefore of Romans 12.1 is referring back to the previous 11 chapters of Roman, Romans where Paul has laid out the case for man's complete ruin and sin and God's perfect remedy in Christ. These overwhelming truths given at the end of chapter 11 move us, therefore, to the therefore of 12, verse 1. And it's these truths about God which undergird and strengthen the motivations of the believer to be a living and holy sacrifice. I know this is often quoted, but it deserves to be. Tozer clearly wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So this morning, before we go one step further in our text, we must take in as much as our puny brains can take in of these truths, that from Him, through Him, to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that we have a better understanding of the weight of this particular therefore, let us now join it to the admonition and friendly exhortation that Paul gives when he says, I urge you. ESV would say there, I appeal to you. Uh, the LSB says, I exhort you. So there's an urging, there's an appealing, there's an ex exhortation. In other words, based on all that has come before in chapters 1 through 11, Paul now intends to tell us how our life in Christ is to be formed. In other words, sanctification. 
To whom is this urging being given? Our text says, uh, brethren. I urge you, brethren. The meaning here is men and women. women. So feel free, if you're writing your Bibles, just to pencil in sistren next to brethren. Because he's talking to both brethren and sistren. I bring this up because it's important to note the text before us this morning is only addressed to those who have been saved by Christ. Those who have received God's mercy and salvation. The truth, this truth causes me to pause and speak to the unbeliever here with us today. The plain truth is I cannot urge or exhort you unbeliever with any truth from Scripture save one. Repent and believe on Christ. Turn to Christ. If you are here this morning and you have not been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, then these exhortations are not for you. And the truth is, outside of Christ, you have no capacity nor ability to do what believers are even called to do. I cannot this morning urge you with the instructions of God's Word is about to give us in these two verses. Romans 8, 5 through 8 says this, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is nothing that an unbeliever does that pleases God. Nothing. We're about to look at the process of sanctification in the believer's life and his walk and how Christ has formed it us. Yet for those of you here this morning that are not in Christ, this cannot be done. So let me break all protocol for my Southern Baptist upbringing and present the gospel at the front of the sermon instead at the end. Because you do have the opportunity this morning, this very moment, to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is holy and he can have nothing to do with sin. But because he loves us and wishes that no one would perish but all would come to repentance, he gave his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To be born in human flesh, to live a sinless life so that he would be free, so he would be the propitiation and the debt payment for the sins of all who would come to him by faith. Christ was made to be sin on our behalf when he was crucified on a Roman cross. He was placed in a borrowed tomb, but praise his name that he rose on the third day. He conquered sin and death. So the question for you unbeliever this morning is, do you put your faith in him? Do you put your trust in Christ? There is nothing that would give more glory to the one who from, through, and to all things were made than for you this morning to repent and believe, to turn to him by faith. So that you too are a recipient of a most wonderful attribute of God, his mercy. You see, Paul is exhorting us and he's urging us to do something quite incredible. So let's in our, turn our attention, our text to, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. I like how the CSB says, in view of the mercies of God. So in, in light of that, in view of that, by that, Paul's exhorting us to do something that really is overwhelming when you think about it in these two verses. Paul is urging us to do what? Well, look at your text. It says to present our bodies to live in holy sacrifice, to not be conformed to this world, to be transformed in our minds, to prove what the will of God is. I mean, just let that sink in. I want us all to feel the weight and immensity of the urging of these two verses. 
we who are in Christ are to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Do you see that in our text? Do you feel the weight of this exhortation? If you are in Christ, your entire body, my entire body, is to be presented to God as living and holy, a sacrifice. And I want us to feel the weight of this command because I want us all to know the goodness of God towards us in this calling when we read the five words, by the mercies of God. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. You see, the key to presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, to truly love the Lord with all our heart and soul and might, according to Deuteronomy 6.5, is to first and foremost set our heart, mind, and soul on the depths and riches of the bottomless mind that are the mercies of God. For those of us in Christ, oh my, let, let, let us recount these mercies. Just listen now to some thoughts of some great men who have gone before us. Tozer says this, Mercy is an attribute of God, an infinite and inexhaustible energy with the divine nature which disposes God to be actually compassionate. If we could really remember that the divine mercy is not a temporary mood, but an attribute of God's eternal being, we would no longer fear that it will someday cease to be. Mercy never began to be. But from eternity was, so it will never cease to be. Could our failure to capture the pure joy of mercy consciously experienced be the result of our unbelief or our ignorance or both? To receive mercy, we must first know that God is merciful. We must believe that our God's mercy is boundless, free, and through Jesus Christ our Lord, available to us now in our present situation. Another great theologian, uh, James, James Boyce, said this in his systematic theology. He says, it consists not only in the desire not to inflict the punishment due sin and the neglect and refusal to do so, but in the actual pardon of the offender. It cannot be exercised towards a righteous being because in him is not sin or guilt to be pardoned. And one of my favorite Puritans, Stephen Charnock, says this, Mercy is an aspect of God's goodness. Goodness sets God upon the exercise of patience, and patience sets many a sinner on running into the arms of mercy. That mercy that makes God ready to embrace the returning sinner makes him willing to bear with them in their sins and await their return. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. And God of all comfort. James 5.11, the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Isaiah 55.3 says, incline your heart and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. And these mercies of God culminate in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's by His mercies toward us that we have the means and motivation to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Which brings us to our next point, our bodies. Uh, the Greek word there is soma. It, it means our self, our flesh. It refers to the entire physical person. It's the same word used in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 27, where Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now let me give a word of caution here. Since I began the message relating to my repenting of idolatry as it concerns gluttony, I do not want to bring any confusion by using 1 Corinthians 9.27. 
to suggest that the remedy for gluttony is physical exercise and diet programs. That's, that's not the, the discipline that it's talking about here. On the contrary, for me, most of those programs and goals led to even more idolatry and haughty pride. Just get around someone that has made their body, their diet, and their workout program an idol, and you'll find it out pretty quickly because that's all they want to talk about. Because their identity is in their body. That's their idol. And some in the Christian community even disguise it as godliness. Yet 1 Timothy 4, 8 says, For bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. See, for me, all those programs uh, merely represented a new idol. Um, and if you're in my life group, you've heard me talk about this. I determined that I had only repented 140 degrees. See, the word repentance means a change of mind. I grew up where sometimes it was repent, you know, it was a slam in the pulpit. But it's not a harsh word. It's a, it's a kind word. And what I was doing was I had set up idols around 140 degrees. So when I got there, I became puffed up with pride. And then I promise you, uh, pride comes before the fall. A haughty spirit is never good before the Lord. And so for me, it became just idol swapping. It just, you know, this food, this exercise, this restriction that I was putting my hope in, it was not in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're also told here what to present, present our bodies. This is our responsibility. This is active, not passive. And the word has much to say about how we and where we present our bodies, doesn't it? Romans 6, 13, 16, and 19, really 13 through 19, but I'm just going to read these three. Romans 6, 13, 16, and 19. 13 says, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. 16 says, do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Every person sitting here today is a slave to either sin or a slave to righteousness. And if you've been purchased by the blood of Christ, you have the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in Christ. But yet we choose that enslavement that is just, it just kills us. It sucks all of our joy. Verse 19 says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. And lastly on this, 1 Corinthians 6.20 so clearly says, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And note that we are to be a living sacrifice. We're not dead sacrifices. Uh, one quip I read when preparing this sermon that I really like is this, that uh, the problem with living sacrifices is they want to slide off the altar. We've got to keep our living and holy sacrifice on the altar. Um, we have to do it daily because we've been bought by Christ. He has purchased us. And we're to be holy. That word just means to be set apart, consecrated, dedicated to the Lord. As what? A sacrifice. That's our offering to God. So my question for all of us is this. 
Are you presenting your body, your entire being, as a living and holy sacrifice? What area of your life do you know that you are in fact not presenting to God as a living and holy sacrifice? Another way to put it just clearly is this, to what sin are you enslaved? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.19, which we already read, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And note it says there, things like these. Gluttony is a thing like these. Gossip is a things like these. Slander is a things like these. Those are all things like these. We want our lives to be, we want our sacrifice to be acceptable to God. We want to be well-pleasing to the Lord. So what does it look like to offer our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to the Lord? Well, thankfully, the Lord, the Word tells us in Psalm 4, 5, that we're to offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 1 Timothy 2, 5, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all things came into being, declares the Lord, but to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Believer, you must tremble at his word. And then lastly, Hebrews 13, 15, and 16, through him then, that's through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So here we're instructed, that is, the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. To put it plainly, where are you not looking like and living like Christ? This isn't some mystical quest where we need to go out in the woods and cross our legs and hail like this and go, mmm, mmm. This is pretty straightforward. The question is, where do you and where do I need to discipline our bodies and make it our slave so that we don't disqualify ourselves from showing and sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to a dying world? For me, it's a long list of all the things that the Lord has freed me from. Some biggies include, decades ago, sexual lust. Then the Lord dealt with me related to anger and roots of bitterness. And most recently, I've already shared gluttony over the last 17 months. I mean, that was an underlying enslavement for decades. And while working on forsaking gluttony, I accidentally fell under conviction about my driving. 
obeying speed limits. And I say accidentally, I, I honestly, the Lord woke me up at two something one morning and I was in there just broken for hours. And I was reading Donald Barnhouse's commentary and fell under conviction about my driving. Repented to the Lord, honestly, in tears. I repented to my wife the next morning. And here's the sweet thing. There's really two primary things that have called great tension in my marriage for 30 plus years. And it's the way I drive and it's the way I ate. And it's been sweet of the Lord and sweet to my wife for her patience to pay off and her praying for me to finally repent from both of those. Now, I'm not the guy in the left lane going the speed limit. I get in the right lane. I'll let people go by this faster than me. Don't worry. I'm not that guy. Um, Kelly and I often ask each other this question, what's next? And that is a scary question. What's next? I mean, we shared, I shared last time at my sermon how my wife went through just 10, 10 months of great grief and anxiety and panic attacks and all those things while I was walking through this at the same time. And I think that's what the Lord used to humble us both. And we come out of that and we look at each other and say, okay, what's next? That's scary, but it's also sweet. We want to look like Christ. He saved us so we would look like him. And I'm not ashamed to put these before you about myself this morning because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what brought me freedom. That is what brings us all freedom. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. One of my favorite verses here is 2 Corinthians 7.10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. That's why as a believer we can be transparent and we can be vulnerable in life groups is because we've been led through the sorrow that God brings to us to a repentance without regret. We want to share that. We want to encourage each other that the Lord is working in us. And we do all this because our text says, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now that word spiritual can be rational, reasonable, um, it's translated into spiritual because it's, it's true to the nature that we have in Christ. Who we are in Christ. So our spiritual service of worship is to do those things that we are because of we, us being in Christ. So a natural thought about he, after hearing all this in verse 1 is this. How do we walk this out? This progressive sanctification. Will you, when you identify an area of enslavement or open sin, how do you walk us out? Which brings us to our point number three. As we move on to verse 2, where we have a double command of what not to do and what to do with our minds. First, for the do not. Do not be conformed to this world. Uh, that, that means age. Now, I'm going I'm to look at this. I'm going to put a little Yoda on this right here, and I'm going to look at the last part first. So it's going to be kind of like, you know, this age, mm -hmm, do not be conformed to. So let's look at, let's look at the world. Let's look at age. Uh, what is this world the text referring to? Um, Lewis Schaefer in his systematic theology is helpful when he writes this. The cosmos, meaning world, is a vast order or system that Satan has promoted which conforms to his ideals, aims, and methods. It's a civilization now functioning apart from God. A civilization which none of its promoters really expect God to share, who assign to God no consideration in respect to their projects. This system embraces its godless governments, conflicts, armaments, 
jealousies, as well as its education, culture, religions of morality and pride. It is that sphere in which man lives. It is what he sees, what he employs. To the uncounted multitude, it is all they will ever know so long as they live on this earth. Clearly stated, the world or age is Satan's world system. What does it mean to be conformed to this world? If we're told not to be this, then what is being this? The, the, the verb conform means to shape one's behavior, uh, to conform one thing to another, or to form oneself after. Uh, one translator's notes that I really appreciated says this, it's a passive notion, for it may suggest that it happens in part subconsciously. At the same time, the passive could well be a permissive passive, suggesting that by there be some consciousness of the conformity taking place. Most likely it is a combination of both. Or Johnny Mac, as he succinctly would say something, it's something we allow to be done to us. You see, God is the creator, and all that God has made is good, and some is very good, yet Satan is a counterfeiter. All Satan has counterfeited is evil, and he takes his counterfeits and he makes an entire world system out of it. So the question for us this morning is this, do we look like, think like, and therefore act like the world or this age which lies in the hands of the devil? How about the church? Many so-called churches today have bought into the lies of the spirit of the age. There's heretical philosophies of a man that have infiltrated the bride of Christ, BLM and CRT and wokeism and humanism and secular psychology, LGBTQ+, egalitarianism. The list goes on and on. And that's why it is critical, it's essential that we have discernment to know the difference between good and evil. My man Spurgeon, you didn't think I'd get through a sermon without at least having one Spurgeon quote, did you? Spurgeon says this, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. Satan doesn't operate in 180 degree lies. He operates in two degrees, three degrees, four degrees. He uses the word, he twists the word. You see it in the first deconstructionist movement in Genesis when he comes and says, did he not say that's what Satan does. So we must have discernment. We're told in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 about unbelievers, it says, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Galatians 1, 4 says, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of God, our God and Father. Too many of us who have received this rescuing keep giving ourselves over the slavery of sin. And we're not walking in the very rescuing that has been purchased by his blood. 1 Peter 1.14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And lastly, 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world. That's Satan's world systems. That's these philosophies that we're talking about. Nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If the Holy Spirit has been imputed to you, which happens at the point of your justification when Christ saves you, you have the Spirit in you, and the Spirit doesn't love the world. Christ doesn't love the world. We would be, that's why we feel conviction 
when we feel the philosophies of the world and of man coming on top of us. Jim Osmond in his book, Truth or Territory, which is a great book related to spiritual warfare, I highly recommend. Here's his, what he has to say about this. He says, we separate from the world when we live and think differently from the godless system which permeates every corner of human thinking, culture, and conduct. Jesus was our model of how to live in the world while confronting the world system. We wage more on the world system by standing against its godless philosophies, speculations, and lofty self-reliant thinking. We proclaim truth, bringing every thought of the unbeliever captive to the obedience of Christ. The degree to which believers individually or the church corporately begins to adopt the world's thinking on marriage, ministry, truth, and all aspects of life and living is the degree to which they lose the spiritual battle. We must not be conformed to this world. So what are we to do? Well, our text says to be transformed. And how are we transformed? We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. Uh, that Greek word there for transform is, is metamorpho, to be changed. is where we get metamorphosis. So we all remember studying that in whatever grade that's in. I didn't do too good in early school. So maybe fourth grade, metamorphosis. We're to be transformed. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, our mind is where, as John MacArthur says, our new nature in Christ collides with our old self, our humanness, and our flesh. That's why we're told in Ephesians 4.23 that to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Titus 3, 3 through 6 states, for we also were once foolish, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived and enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, we are to be putting off the old self. We're to be putting off sin, putting off the lies of the world from the flesh, worldly philosophies and ways of thinking. We're, we're supposed to renew our minds. John 17, 17, when Christ is talking with the Father, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He's begging the Lord in his prayer to sanctify us in the truth. It's through the word and prayer, prayer informed by the word that we're sanctified and that the spirit works through to allow us then to put on Christ. We put off, we renew, and we put on. But to what end? Well, that's our fourth point. It says, so that, so that you may prove what the will of God is. It means to put to a test, to, to examine um, to test and approve is it's it's to test with a positive outcome. It's, kind of, it's the same word that's used in 1 Timothy 3.10 where it says those men must also first be tested, referring to test deacons. And you would also test elders because it says also test. So you're testing with a positive outcome. 
Paul writes in Colossians 1 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we want this because we know that the will of God is good. We know that the will of God is acceptable, it's pleasing, and we know that it's perfect. The word perfect describes God's will and God's mercies that culminate in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to be a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. It's His mercies in Christ that compel us to give our bodies and our minds uh, as our spiritual service of worship. And He wants all of us. He created us and He purchased us. Ultimately, God's will for us is to be conformed to the image of His Son, our Savior. Because this brings Him glory. That's our chief end in this life, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How do we walk this out? I've already talked about putting off, renewing, and putting on. Just making your notes right there. Ephesians 4, 20 and 24, 20 through 24. Colossians 3, 1 through 10. During your time of study, go back and read those and think about putting off, renewing, and putting on. Um, in the closing, as a practical application, I just want to pass on to you something that uh, I learned in one of my, the resources that I used, Jim recommended. Um, and this is something that has to be done daily, and it has to be done in this order. And, and it's called the three W's. The first thing we're called to do is to wash at the cross. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Make a note of that. It's essential to the Christian's walk to daily wash at the cross. To think on the mercies of God that culminate in our Lord Jesus Christ's work on the cross. Thomas Brooks writes in uh, his work, Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices, this. It was good counsel one gave. Never let go out of your mind the thoughts of a crucified Christ. Let these be meat and drink unto you. Let them be your sweetness and consolation, your honey and your desire, your reading and your meditation, your life, death, and resurrection. We have to wash at the cross. Just consider these lyrics penned by William Cowper. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. We have to wash at the cross. That's where we focus on the mercies of God that compel us and give us the means to do anything else we're called to do. Secondly, we're to walk with the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. John MacArthur says that God's Word is what the Spirit uses to renew our minds. This changes us from the inside out, and it's continual. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We must wash it, wash at the cross, and so that we can therefore walk with the Spirit. The last thing we need to do is we have to war with the flesh. That's our third W. You've got to war with the flesh. Romans 6, 6 and 7 says this, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, 
so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Romans 8.13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit, so we've washed at the cross, we're walking with the Spirit, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Donald Gray Barnhouse is so helpful when he says this, Though the central sphere of victory in Christian living must be within the hidden heart, excuse me, the hidden man of the heart, it is nevertheless true that the war must be waged in the body. In uh, Puritan, great Puritan John Owen's work, Mortification of Sin, says that you be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He also says your flesh is working the most when you think it's working the least. That's why we must wash at the cross, walk with the Spirit, and be actively warring against our flesh. Let me pray to that end. Father, we praise you, first and foremost, that your word says, by the mercies of God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank you that you have purchased us from a life of sin and slavery. Lord, to be your slave, you are kind and gracious. Lord, I pray this morning that anyone here that does not know you, Lord, that this, the seeds of the gospel that were sown, Lord, that you would cause the miracle, that you would cause the repentance, that you would do the redeeming work. Lord, I pray for all of us here that belong to you, that you have purchased, Lord, that we would take this message to heart, Lord, that we would have conviction where there should be conviction, that we would be encouraged by your mercies, Lord, that we truly would walk in newness of life. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.